Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everybody, this is Chris Melanfi, host of Hit Parade, Slate's podcast of pop chart history. Welcome to The Bridge. That's Ike and Tina Turner's Proud Mary, the best-known cover of Creedence Clearwater Revival's classic song. We just played you the part where the song bridges from a slow vamp to a killer rave-up, one of the most famous tempo changes in rock history. And that, of course, is Ms. Tina Turner, bridging you from nice and easy to nice and rough. And as always, these mini-episodes bridge our full-length monthly episodes and give us a chance to catch up with our listeners and enjoy some trivia. This month, as always, I'm delighted to be joined by the colleague who helps me take it to the bridge, Slate Podcast Senior Producer, TJ Raphael. Hey, TJ. Hi, Chris. How's it going? Good. Thanks so much for having me on. Always a pleasure. I'm so glad that you just played that Tina Turner song because I, I mean, I'm a huge Proud Mary fan in general. You know, it got me thinking about how much Credence music has been covered by other artists. And then also the concept of when does a cover sort of outpace the original, you know, becomes so well known that we kind of forget the original or maybe it overshadows the original. I think the first time that I heard Proud Mary was the Ike and Tina version. Hmm. I don't think it was actually the Credence version when I was a kid. So can you talk about, you know, some of your favorite covers or some artists that, you know, their song was covered and now it kind of belongs in in some ways to a a different artist? You know, some of my favorite covers are the ones where the cover is truly transformational, and you're right, then it kind of belongs to the other artist. I believe you and I talked about one of these when we did our tribute to Aretha Franklin last summer. I often reach for it as my favorite cover of all time. It's it's kind of the most famous cover of all time because so many people barely realize it is a cover. Her number one hit, Respect, is a song by Otis Redding. It was recorded first by Otis Redding. And the story is, has been repeated so many times, it's frankly probably apocryphal, but Otis reportedly said, that girl stole my song. And he said it admiringly. He knew that the song no longer belonged to him. Um, there are covers I love because they are so transformational. Uh, for example, um, one that was not a hit, but of course the original is a massive hit, is uh, the Rolling Stones' I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Uh, my favorite cover of that is the utterly strange cover by uh, the uh, Ohio rock band Devo, who absolutely turned it into their idiom. They they digital rocked it up and, you know, kind of made it this herky-jerky synthy thing, but it's such an amazing cover. It completely 
completely transforms the song and the tempo and almost everything about it. It's it's nearly unrecognizable. Yet, you know, there are stories that they had to get Mick Jagger's permission for it, and Mick Jagger loved it. So uh, it, it was definitely approved by the original writer. Well, one of my favorite cover songs where I think the cover has kind of, in a way, outshone the original is All Along the Watchtower. Absolutely. (laughs) I love Bob Dylan. He is amazing. But the Jimi Hendrix version is just incredible. The guitar in there is amazing. There must be some kind of way out of here. Say the joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. It sort of becomes so synonymous as well with Jimi Hendrix. When you say all along the Watchtower, you don't just think about Bob Dylan. You really think about both of them in a lot of ways. And that's really one of my favorite covers. You know, we could do an entire conversation about covers of Dylan and about songs that were utterly transformed because, of course, Dylan has his own inimitable, uh, you know, sometimes loopy way of singing his own songs. And then they are turned into big pop hits, everything from Mr. Tambourine Man by the Birds to uh, Blowing in the Wind by Peter, Paul and Mary uh, to more recently a ballad that's been covered by everybody from Billy Joel to Garth Brooks to Adele, uh, which is this ballad that doesn't even sound much like a Dylan song, but Dylan first wrote it and recorded it for his uh, late 90s album Time Out of Mind and it's since kind of become a standard I could hold you for a million years to make you feel my love so before we move to trivia I really want to quickly talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last year of course you did an entire episode on one of our inductees Bon Jovi which got a lot of people talking it well did indeed. <laughs> the rock and roll hall of fame induction is back it's coming up uh can you tell us a little bit about who's uh being honored and there's one that i think a lot of people are watching and talking about yeah First, let me run down the list and let me take a quick victory lap because in that Bon Jovi episode last year, I closed by saying, hey, if we're going to start doing hair metal of the 80s, why have we not nominated Def Leppard yet? Well, I'm not saying I did this single handedly, but let's just say Def Leppard are getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. So I'm going to I'm going to take minor credit for that. In addition, The Cure, Stevie Nicks, Radiohead, Roxy Music, The Zombies, and I'm leaving this name last for a reason, Janet Jackson are being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. And in terms of what people are talking about, you know, Janet Jackson, um, as a member of the Jackson family, uh, is in the middle of obviously a tremendous convulsive controversy right now, not involving herself, uh, but involving her brother, Michael. Uh, And we're taping this episode uh, in the immediate wake of the HBO documentary, Leaving Neverland, uh, which discusses the allegations against uh, Michael Jackson by James Safechuck and Wade Robeson. And it would be an understatement to say that this is the conversation dominating popular music right now. And I suppose it's too soon to say, but one wonders whether Janet, uh, who has not made any specific statements regarding her brother, will be drawn into this controversy given the perhaps unfortunate timing of this moment of glory in her career. Uh, As a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame voter myself, I voted for Janet Jackson uh, proudly. I, I am excited for her and I I really hope that um, this moment when 
the culture is considering how it deals with the art of Michael Jackson uh, in the wake of these revelations. I hope that that does not um, overshadow uh, a moment that Janet has uh, richly earned. Uh, and I think we will need to wait and see how that uh, plays out in the weeks to come. So before we move on to trivia, last year you kind of predicted that Def Leppard would get in. Can we get a prediction for this year? You know, who in 2020 are we going to be saying, oh, God, Chris Malanfi, he got it right again? <laughs> um, gosh, that's a tough call. So Radiohead finally got in. I've been saying for a couple of years that they were a shoe in I was frankly surprised it took two tries to get them in. You know, The Cure just got in after being on the ballot a couple of times, and I often t- uh, joke about what I call the holy trinity of British mope rock uh, between them, Depeche Mode, and The Smiths. All three of those bands have been on the uh, Rock Hall ballot. I would say the less problematic of the two, given that The Smiths are fronted by Morrissey, who's a bit of a controversial figure, would probably be Depeche Mode. So perhaps this indicates that Depeche Mode would stand a chance if they were back on the ballot. Or maybe other uh, 80s, 90s rock legends uh, from the world of alternative music need to make their first appearance on the ballot. Uh, The Pixies have still not been nominated. I would be intrigued to see how they would do if they were on the ballot. So I don't know. We'll find out next fall when they put out the next list of uh, the next short list of nominees. But um, this ballot definitely checks some boxes that have never been checked before. And it'll be cool to see if they can now move on to some acts that are overdue themselves. Well, congratulations to all of our 2019 inductees. Here's a little Janet to take us out before some trivia. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Now comes the time in our Hit Parade the Bridge episode where we do some trivia, and I am delighted to be joined this month by Becky. Uh, Hi, Becky. Hi, Chris. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? Uh, Terrific. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you doing this. Oh, I'm thrilled. I understand you're a musician yourself. Is that right? I am. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. I'm sort of like like CCR. I do unfashionable two to three minute guitar driven rock songs. Good for you. Um, you know what is slightly, I'm going to digress for 10 seconds. What is slightly fashionable is that there's all these reports hitting the music biz now that because of streaming, songs are getting short again. Oh yeah. Maybe that's so, my like, chance. This is your opportunity. <laughs> Seriously. The two to three minute song is where it's at right now. If you can feed people something catchy that gets its point across in two minutes, 15 seconds, they might record it and right. you might have a hit. So, uh, yeah, go rock and roll. Um, (laughs) I also understand that you are a Slate Plus member. Is that right, Becky? I am, yeah. Proud Slate Plus member. Excellent. Um, So that's important because while this Bridge episode is available to all Hit Parade subscribers, we only open our trivia rounds to Slate Plus members. So if you are a member and would like to be a trivia contestant, visit slate.com slash hitparadesignup. That's slate.com slash hitparadesignup. So as you may recall from... 
previous episodes of Hit Parade the Bridge, we're going to do three trivia questions right now. The first one will call back to last month's full-length episode, and the next two will be a preview of our next full-length episode. And then when we're done, you will get to turn the tables on me. Uh, Are you ready for the trivia, Becky? I'm ready. Fantastic. Question one. In last month's episode, we heard a lot of Proud Mary. Credence's original version came out first, but who scored the first cover version on the charts? A. Anthony Armstrong Jones, B. Solomon Burke, C. Elvis Presley, or D. Ike and Tina Turner? Well, I remember you saying that Solomon Burke had a cover version, um, and I think you said it charted. I remember Elvis had one as well, and of course, I can Tina Turner, but I'm going to go with Solomon Burke. And you would be correct. That is right. right. B, Solomon Burke. Big wheels keep on turning. I'll never keep on burning. You're just rolling, rolling, rolling on the real His version only hit number 45, but it was the first cover to chart. Anthony Armstrong Jones from the World of Country took it to number 22 on the country charts just two months later. Ike and Tina, of course, had the biggest version, but not until 1971 when it reached number four. Fantastic. Nice job, Becky. Thanks. All right. Let's do two questions now that will be a preview of the next episode. Here we go. Question two. In his legendary career, Stevie Wonder has scored 10 number one hits on the Hot 100, including four in the 1980s and five in the 1970s. But what was his only number one Hot 100 hit in the 1960s? A. Fingertips. B. My Cherie Amour. C. I Was Made to Love Her. Or D. Uptight. Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I remember he started off as Little Stevie Wonder, so I'm guessing one of those was released under that name. Um, I'm going to go with Fingertips. And you are correct again. The correct answer is A, Fingertips. It went to number one in 1963 when he was known as Little Stevie Wonder. It was his last number one hit for nearly a decade. Excellent. You are running the table here, Becky. Great job. (laughs) Hopefully I can keep it up. Hopefully you can keep it up. All right, here's question three. Let's see how you do. In the 1970s, Stevie Wonder generated the longest streak of Grammy success when he scored three back-to-back-to-back Album of the Year winners. Which of these 70s albums by Wonder did not win that prize? A. Inner Visions. B, Songs in the Key of Life, C, Talking Book, or D, Fulfillingness First Finale? Hmm. A lot of really good albums. I'm going to go with Talking Book. You have run the table. That is correct. Talking Book. Excellent. Very superstitious. This 1972 album was, surprisingly, not nominated for Album of the Year, but all three of Stevie's next studio albums were not only nominated, but won the prize back-to-back on the Grammys of 1974, 75, and 77. 
Well done. My goodness. You crushed it. Well, thank you. So congratulations for running the table. And now, of course, uh, comes the point where you get to turn the tables on me and I get to, uh, you know, ruin uh, this beautiful streak (laughs) that we have going of uh, perfect trivia answers. Are you ready to ask me a question? I'm ready. All right. Give it to me. Okay. Stevie Wonder was only 11 years old when he signed to Motown and was able to score a number one hit with the label at age 13. While Wonder is known for his music, he also has deep political roots. Motown itself also has political roots that may be lesser known to many. Which of the following civil rights activists did Motown record a spoken word album with? A. Elaine Brown. B. Martin Luther King Jr. C. Langston Hughes. Or D. All of the above. I am pretty sure they recorded an album with Dr. King. Um, And so my temptation is to run right for that one. Um, But... On the other hand, I suppose it's possible that they could have recorded the other two. Um, I will go with D, all of the above. You're right. It's D, all of the above. That's amazing. I've chosen to preach about the war in Vietnam today because I agree with Dante that the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who in a period of moral crisis maintain their neutrality. The record label founded by Barry Gordy made stars of the likes of Diana Ross, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, and countless others. But Motown also had a spoken word label called Black Forum, which was set up by Gordy in 1970. It released compilations of speeches, poetry, and oral history. Among them were works by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Langston Hughes, and former Black Panther Party chairwoman Elaine Brown, among others. Two years after he was assassinated, the label released a speech by Dr. King called Why I Oppose the War in Vietnam on the Black Forum label. Stevie Wonder also has ties to the late civil rights hero. He was a huge force behind the movement to create a national holiday recognizing the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. On his 1980 album, Hotter Than July, Stevie Wonder included the song Happy Birthday, his ode to Martin Luther King Jr. and his call to make MLK Day official. love that song and uh, I often share it uh, on friends' birthdays. Uh, I believe uh, our former Slate colleague Aisha Harris did a wonderful article about how it is basically unofficially become the black happy birthday song, you know, a song that was originally political but has now uh, taken on resonance as, uh, you know, just a, a celebratory song at birthday celebrations. So, uh, Wow, that was a fantastic question. I actually learned a thing or two while amazingly getting it right and not blowing our perfect streak today. Uh, So I think this stands as the only hit parade the bridge where all of the questions were answered correctly. So good for us. Yeah, I'm glad to be part of hit parade history. You certainly are, Becky. Thank you so, so much for taking part and uh, for joining us this month. And I do hope you enjoy our Stevie Wonder episode. I'm sure I will. Thank you. Oh, my God, you broke your streak. Yay. Thank God. <laughs> Thank heaven. Finally. Man, it was getting embarrassing for a few months there. It was a long time. But, I mean, this is a good question to come back to. So, you know, it's a strong one. It's a powerful one. I like the history in it. And I like the reminder that Motown uh, really took its mantle as sort of, in Barry Gordy's words, the sound of young America and the sound of black America quite seriously. Uh, the facts in that question were, were really on point. 
So can you tell us a little bit about the next episode now that we know that it's going to be about Stevie Wonder? Is there going to be some Motown connection in there? Can you give us a little bit of preview um, before we head into next month? Right. Well, Stevie Wonder really is a singular artist in every way, including in the Motown stable. Um, And I want to talk about kind of the front half of Stevie's career. Where do you begin with Stevie Wonder, right? It's an epic career. It's still ongoing. Uh, Thank heaven, you know, he's still with us, uh, not recording as frequently, but, you know, still touring. And what I want to talk about is the unusual way Stevie Wonder's career began and how many of us, notwithstanding the fact that Becky, our guest, just got that second trivia question correct, uh, you don't hear Fingertips, his first number one hit on the radio very much anymore. And I want to remind people what an interesting singular career Stevie had in the 1960s. He began as a child star, and then he also made a move toward independence that is almost unprecedented. It's singular within the history of Motown. It's unusual in the history of child-to-man careers and then the just epic success he had in the 1970s, not just commercially but critically, uh, sort of redefining the sound of pop, funk, R&B, rock. Uh, You know, it, it really is amazing. Honestly, we could do four or five episodes about the career of Stevie Wonder, which is why I want to kind of hone it in on about a decade to call it a dozen years of his career. And and that's what we'll be talking about in this next episode. Well, I can't wait to listen. So I'm really looking forward to it. And thank you so much again for having me on the bridge, Chris. Thank you for being here, TJ. I appreciate it. I'm TJ Raphael, the senior producer of the Slate Podcast Network. And I'm Chris Melanfi. Keep on marching on the one. You can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>